Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for one another. We thank you for your word, the Bible. We thank you for how you speak through this, even now today. You promised to do so by your Holy Spirit. We pray that you would do that now, that you would open our eyes, help us to see what you're saying here, so that we may know you better in our lives today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, before we get to the reading, let me ask you this. Can you imagine living in a world where artificial intelligence will enable the creation of hyper-realistic but fake video footage of any public figure, making them say and do things they never said or did? Can you imagine what that would do for political campaigns? the distrust it would eventually invoke for all news sources and media, the sense that there is nothing trustworthy, even nothing true. Well, perhaps the horrifying thing to realise is that we're almost there already. A few months ago, a video appeared online of Donald Trump offering advice to the people of Belgium on the issue of climate change. And he said this in the video, he said, People of Belgium, as you know, I had the balls to withdraw from the Paris Climate Agreement, and so should you. And people went crazy. Well, how dare he weigh in on the affairs of another country, and so on. And the thing is, the video was entirely fake. It was created by a production studio who were actually commissioned by a Belgian political party who assumed that everyone would see straight away that it was fake, and they would get that it was a publicity stunt to raise the issue of climate change. But maybe because it was subtitled into Flemish, people weren't really looking at the way Trump's lips were moving, and that they were moving slightly awkwardly in this simulation, uh, and also that his voice appeared to be an actor, or at least computer simulated. But if you were watching with the sound off and you were reading the subtitles, you wouldn't really notice that. And the thing is, technology is only improving all the time. And we are heading fast for the era of what is called the deep fake, where machine learning enables computers to study the mannerisms and facial expressions of a public speaker and reproduce them extremely accurately, which enables then the production of highly realistic fake video footage that stands up to deep scrutiny. And as one commentator put it, in a world where nothing is true, it is the dishonest person who will thrive by saying that what is true is fake. Do you see? This is where we end up in a world where truth is definitely not absolute, but where actually it's no longer relative either. You know, we, we've been used to saying, true for me, true for you, the kind of postmodern thing. But actually, even that is irrelevant if we can't be sure if anything is true anymore. This is now a post-truth world where the one who shouts the loudest wins and raw power is all that counts. And in a post-truth world, who can you trust? That's the implication of this. In a world without God, the answer surely is, well, you can't trust anyone. 
Because the basis of trust has to be truth. You can't trust someone who you can't be sure is telling the truth. So we need to get back to basics. At the heart of the Christian faith is the conviction that God is trustworthy because he speaks truly. What he says he will do, he does. He's no politician worried about the optics in the next election. He's not an internet data emphasising more attractive points and and playing down what might be off-putting so that it can be safely revealed later. He speaks the truth. He defines the truth. He is the truth. You can trust him. That is what we've been seeing so far in the life of Abraham in the book of Genesis. God is a God who makes promises. And we've seen in the face of the rebellion of human beings, he chooses one man, Abraham, and he makes extraordinary promises of a people, of a land, of a blessing to him and through him. And we've seen Abraham struggling to trust. But chapter 15, two weeks ago, was a high point. Abraham is struggling to believe one of his descendants will inherit the promises. And God says, no, a son coming from your own body will be your heir. And Abraham believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. He believed that God was telling the truth. And God said, you are right with me. Despite your sin and your failure and your weakness, you are right with me because you trust me. And that day, God made a covenant with Abraham. In the ceremony that followed, he effectively promised that the covenant would be kept over his dead body. This is a solemn and unbreakable promise that God has made. But alongside these promises, we've seen that the obedience that comes from Abraham's faith goes up and down. And last time in chapter 16, we saw once again Abraham and Sarai seeking to shortcut the weight for God to give them an heir. But now, in chapter 17, 13 years later, a long time of wondering what God might be doing next, well, God comes to them again to confirm this covenant that he made in chapter 15. So, let's read it. Chapter 17, page 16. Let me read this to you now. When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. I will confirm my covenant between you and me and will greatly increase your numbers. Abraham fell face down, and God said to him, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abraham. Your name will be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you, and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan, where you are now an alien, I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you, and I will be their God. Then God said to Abraham, As for you, you must keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you, for the generations to come. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you, the covenant you are to keep. 
Every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision, and it will be the sign of the covenants between me and you. For the generations to come, every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised, including those born in your household or bought with money from a foreigner, those who are not your offspring. Whether born in your household or bought with your money, they must be circumcised. My covenant in your flesh is to be an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. God also said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you are no longer to call her Sarai, her name will be Sarah. I will bless her and will surely give you a son by her. I will bless her so that she will be the mother of nations. Kings of people will come from her. Abraham fell face down. He laughed and said to himself, will a son be born to a man a hundred years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of 90? And Abraham said to God, if only Ishmael might live under your blessing. Then God said, yes, but your wife Sarah will bear you a son and you will call him Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. And as for Ishmael, I have heard you. I will surely bless him. I will make him fruitful and will greatly increase his numbers. He will be the father of 12 rulers and I will make him into a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you by this time next year. When he had finished speaking with Abraham, God went up from him. On that very day, Abraham took his son Ishmael and all those born in his household or bought with his money, every male in his household, and circumcised them, as God told him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised, and his son Ishmael was 13. Abraham and his son Ishmael were both circumcised on that same day. And every male in Abraham's household, including those born in his household or bought from a foreigner, was circumcised with him. Well, there we go. There's two main things to see now as God reconfirms his covenant with Abraham. Two things to see about the God of the covenant and the people of the covenant. So first, the generous rule of the covenant God, as you can see, verses 1 to 8 and 15 to 21, the generous rule of the covenant God. The chapter that we've just read is structured in two parallel halves. God speaks first about Abraham and then secondly about Sarah, and it's helpful to kind of put them alongside each other before we see then the required response of the covenant people in the second part of each of those halves. So verse 1, I am God Almighty, says God. God has a number of different titles that refer to aspects, different aspects of who he is. It's a bit like Queen Elizabeth II. So Queen Elizabeth II is Queen of the United Kingdom and her other realms and territories. But did you know she's also the chief hunter of the Order of the Buffalo Hunt in Canada? I'm not sure what that entails for her, but it is another title that she is entitled to. But God Almighty, it's El Shaddai, that refers to God's power. 
And in particular, in Genesis, it's always connected with his power to create descendants. As it is here, it's what he says, isn't it? He's, as sovereign ruler, he says, verse 2, I will confirm my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. Verse 4, you will be the father of many nations. And then to emphasize his rule and his authority over Abraham and later in the chapter over Sarai, he changes their names. Abraham means exalted father. Abraham means father of many. So verse 5, his new name is connected with the promise God is making to him. And then with Sarai and Sarah in verse 15, actually both those names mean princess. They're really just different versions of the same name. So the point isn't so much what the names are, but the point is that God has the right to change their names. Now when you think about it, names are pretty personal things. When I baptise a child... I always double-check the name before doing the baptism. I did that this morning. I don't want to say it wrong, because that would be awkward, wouldn't it? And it's the same in all of life. You, you, you can't just change someone's name on a whim, and it gets very embarrassing, doesn't it? If someone keeps calling you by the name that you've not told them is your name, it gets very awkward, because you, that's not my name, not how you say it, or you, you've just got me completely wrong. So you don't do that, unless you're the sovereign God of the universe. That's the point with these name changes. This is God Almighty, and he's in charge. And he then demonstrates further that he's in charge by insisting that the line of the promise has to continue through Sarah's naturally born son. And Abraham can't believe what he's hearing. Remember, there's 13 years between the end of the previous chapter and the start of this chapter, because we hear at the end that, um, that, that Ishmael is 13, and he was born at the end of the last chapter. And in that time, all those years, can you imagine the conversations? You know, well, you know, do you think maybe, do you think maybe Ishmael actually is the promised one after all? Do you think maybe the line is going to continue through him? You know, yes, technically she came from Hagar, but he is my son, Abraham might say. And God says, no, this is my choice. And what's more, I'm going to choose his name, and his name is going to be Isaac, which means he laughs. Because you laughed, Abraham when I said, your 90-year-old wife is going to have a baby. Because Abraham was thinking, well, how would that happen after all these years? We've been waiting for this promise and nothing's happened. Well, it's ridiculous. But the point is, God is a truth teller. And you can trust him. You need to trust him. It may not be on your timing, but he can be trusted. So Isaac will inherit the promise. And before we go any further, we need to see who this God of the covenant is then. He is the sovereign ruler. And his covenant is his idea and not ours. See, so often people approach Christianity as if we are interviewing God for a job. You know, I need a, some kind of spiritual deity in my life. Will this one do? Does he measure up to how I think he ought to be? Well, of course, the reality is it's the other way around, isn't it? The question is not whether God fits in our lives, but whether we can ever fit in his. If the God we say we believe in never challenges us, never disagrees with us, never causes us to change, we have to ask, do we really know God? Do we really know the sovereign God of this covenant? That's why sometimes when people say to me, well, you know, I don't believe in God. 
my response is, well, okay, which God don't you believe in? And they tell me how they, how they view the God that they don't believe in. And I say, well, I tell you what, I don't believe in him either. Because what they're describing is not this God that has made himself known in the Bible. But Christians can struggle with this in, in other ways too. Because if we think God is just meant to be what we want him to do all the time, and that he's never meant to disagree with us, never meant to challenge us, well, actually, that is the road to spiritual frustration and anger. You know, if I were God, I wouldn't do it like this, we think. But the thing is, we're not God, and he is. So will we let him disagree with us? Will we let him take us through challenging times? Will we trust him when he says that we can trust him? That's what we need to ask ourselves. But if that is who this sovereign God of the covenant is, the sovereign ruler, what then are the benefits of this covenant with this ruler God? Well, verse 6, look at that. He begins to spell out the promises even further. Kings will come from you. That's a new aspect of the promise he hasn't spelt out before. It keeps on getting more specific through the story of Abraham. And it's the first hint of what comes later in 1 and 2 Samuel. And indeed in the birth much later of Jesus, son of Abraham and king of the world. But verse 7, this covenant he is confirming is to be that he will be your God, he says, and the God of your descendants after you. To be your God? Well, isn't he our God already, we might think? Well, verse 8, he will give them the land and then at the end he will be their God. What's, what's going on with that then? Well, the, the fact is, naturally, God is not our God in the personal, relational sense. We don't know him. We are not friends with him, naturally, because of our sin, because of the way we've turned our backs on him, as the story of the, the Garden of Eden makes clear. And yet, he's now promising to reverse all that. He's now promising to be in relationship with human beings. It's an extraordinarily generous offer. It's not what we deserve, and yet it is what we are offered. This is what we've created for. Think of a dog. Think of, you know, maybe you've got a pet dog. Let's call him Buster. When is Buster happiest? Well, certainly not when he's chained up in a kennel and unable to get out, unable to exercise, just chained up all day, every day, confined in a small space. He's certainly not happiest then. But he's certainly not also happy when he's actually roaming free, completely unsupervised. You know, running around on Hampstead Heath. No, no owner in sight. Actually, that leads to disaster when you let a dog do that. And yet so often we think those are the only two choices in human terms for our relationship to God. You know, it's either being kind of chained by his laws, bound up in miserable and glum servitude, or it's kind of roaming free, breaking free of all that and leaving God behind. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. And yet the thing is, when we do that, we're prone to damage both ourselves and those around us. But there is a better way for Buster, isn't there? Which is walking with his master or his mistress. Not always on the lead, but never too far from their voice. 
And human beings are created to be in the same kind of dependent, loving relationship with the sovereign God who made us. We've strayed from that. We don't deserve it. But here in this covenant with those who don't deserve it, God says, I will be your God. And do you notice he says this covenant is to be everlasting? And that points us forward to how this covenant has been fulfilled in the New Testament era. How we today can be children of Abraham, not just by being born in his family, but by having faith in God like he did. And the first reading we heard from Romans spells that out. Christians are now children of the new covenant, which centres on Abraham's offspring, Jesus. And the new covenant is the same as this covenant in that it's a covenant of grace, of generosity, and yet it's even better. It's as if in the covenant with Abraham, God promised his people a VW car. Just bear with me. He promises a VW car in the form of people in a land under his blessing. But then in the new covenant fulfilled in Jesus, it turns out that when the day comes and God fulfills his promises in Christ, what he actually gives is more like a Porsche than a VW. Now, you'd be delighted with the promise of a VW, wouldn't it? It's a reliable car. You'd be very happy if someone gave you that for free. But you're ecstatic when the gift turns out to be a Porsche. And that is what we find in the New Covenant. It is open to anyone who has faith in Jesus, not just those born into his family, as it was with Abraham. The land that he's promised is now the whole world, not just an area of the Middle East. The blessings are now to the nations, in fact, just as was promised to Abraham in the first place. So this was always the intention, but now we see it as it's fulfilled in Christ in its fullness. So for us today, it's the same generous, giving and ruling God who who revealed himself to Abraham and made a covenant with him and his descendants. And if we too are his covenant people today, then the next question is what is required of us in that covenant? And that's what we see secondly in this chapter So, second point, the obedient faith of the covenant people. The obedient faith of the covenant people. Verses 9 to 14 and then 22 to 27. What does God say to Abraham in these verses? He says, verse 1, walk before me and be blameless. And as a sign of that, Abraham bows down to him. It happens a couple of times through the chapter. And God gives him a sign of the covenant verses 10 and 11, which is circumcision for all the males in his family. And circumcision is a pretty serious business in more ways than one. Look at how it's emphasised in these verses. Verse 10, every male shall be circumcised. Verse 12, every male, including foreigners in your household, must be circumcised. Verse 13, they must be circumcised. And what happens if you don't? Verse 14, you shall be cut off. Now, why choose circumcision as a sign? Well, it's not entirely clear why that particular sign has to be the sign, but it seems to be a physical way of marking out who is in the covenant, using a practice that was known in some other nations of that time, but not the ones in the immediate vicinity of the land of Canaan. So it's marking them out, saying these people are different. And it perhaps carries with it a physical sign of what happens 
if you don't keep the covenant. You get cut off, verse 14. So walk with God and be blameless and definitely, absolutely circumcise all males. But maybe this raises a question. It should raise a question. Well, surely being in the covenant and therefore being right with God depends only on faith. That's what we discovered in chapter 15. Abraham believed God and he credited it to him as righteousness. Now, this is exactly what Paul examines in Romans chapter 4, which we heard earlier. And what he argues is that faith came first, even for Abraham. It wasn't circumcision or obedience that made Abraham right with God. He was justified by faith, just like we are. Faith comes first, but it leads to obedience. So verse 1 is to be the fruit of Abraham's faith. It's not the reason God will accept him. And then circumcision is the sign that the faith is there. So why then would they be cut off if they weren't circumcised? Well, because that would be demonstrating a lack of faith, do you see? A lack of belief that God is worth taking seriously. But note that just being circumcised by itself isn't enough. So we read at the end of the chapter that, God, that Abraham does exactly what God has told him to do. He circumcises every man in his household, and that includes Ishmael, who we already know will not inherit the promise. And from chapter 16, we know he will be a wild donkey of a man, <clears throat> falling out with everyone around him. In other words, he won't be a man of faith. Faith is what matters. Circumcision is just the sign of that. And later, one of the main things the prophets warn Israel about is that their physical circumcision is not being matched with a circumcision of the heart. In other words, the outward sign is not being matched by faith on the inside, in the heart. And in the end, that is why they are exiled from the promised land. Now, if that is the VW version of the covenant of grace... What does it look like for us with the Porsche version, now that Christ has come? Well, God is still a generous ruler who creates us to know him. The required response to the offer of life in the gospel is still faith. And in the new covenant, that faith unites us to Jesus who gave his blood to secure that new covenant. And united to him, we live a life of obedience that flows from that faith. But each covenant in the Bible has some kind of sign or symbol associated with it. So there's the tree of life in the Garden of Eden in the covenant with Adam. The the, the rainbow in the covenant with Noah. Circumcision in the covenant with Abraham. Sabbath in the covenant with Moses. And in the new covenant, we have two signs of entering and belonging to God's people, which are baptism and the Lord's Supper. They are signs, they are symbols. And in particular, Baptism functions for Christians in a similar way to how circumcision functions for the physical children of Abraham. It's a sign of being a member of the people of the covenant. It works in a very similar way. It's not the same as faith. It doesn't replace faith. It doesn't make you a Christian simply by doing it. Just like circumcision didn't in itself make Ishmael a faithful member of God's people. No, it's a sign of faith and therefore it needs to be accompanied by faith. So why then might it be appropriate to baptise children like we baptised Evie this morning? 
well, follow the covenant logic, if you like. The, the, the covenant with Abraham is the VW version of the same everlasting covenant of grace, which is the Porsche version that anyone can be included in today by faith. But it's the same covenant. And Gentiles, like many of us, have been grafted in and are counted children of Abraham, not because we're descended from him, but because we have faith like he did. But in that covenant of grace with Abraham, male children were given the outward sign of belonging to God's people. It didn't mean they were automatically faithful. They needed to have faith. But now that Jesus has come, wouldn't it be odd if things got worse rather than better under the Porsche version of the covenant of grace? You know, picture the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came after Jesus had ascended to heaven in in Acts chapter 2. Peter has proclaimed that Jesus is the fulfilment of everything the old covenants promised. And the crowd say, okay, what must we do? And he says, repent and be baptised. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And we read that around 3,000 people came forward and are baptised. Now imagine a family in that crowd You know, it's hard to believe there would have been no children present in that multitude. You know, there's Reuben and Rebecca with their young children, Levi and Simeon. And children have always been included up to this point in this covenant. And they come forward. And are we to imagine the apostles saying to them, and hang on a minute, hang on a minute, not the children. No, we didn't mean the children. And they're thinking, but hang on, that, that sounds worse than what we had before. It's meant to be even better now that Jesus has come. Well, it's not what Peter says in the very next verse, in Acts chapter 2, verse 39. He says, this promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So do you see, God has always worked in families, and under the sort of Porsche version of the covenant, he continues to do so. And now it's not just boys, but girls too. It's even better. And again, just note very carefully, it's not that baptising a child automatically gives him or her faith, but it's a sign that they belong to the people of the covenant. And it's then the job of their parents and their church to teach them to live up to the baptism promises made on their behalf as they grow up. Now, you will know that this is not something that all Bible-believing Christians agree on, and that's okay. You know, some families prefer to wait select children to be baptised later and we respect that at, at St John's but we, you know, we just encourage you to make sure you can explain what you're doing from the Bible rather than just out of tradition or whatever but maybe it's helpful to just take that time to see the reason that we do baptise children at St John's and it isn't simply sort of ticking an Anglican box or conforming to tradition or whatever it, it originates in the understanding of this covenant with Abraham, which continues into the new covenant that we are under by trusting in Jesus. So then, what what then are all the implications for us? Uh, A few questions to ask as we close. Do you know this generous ruling God of the covenants? That promise, I will be their God, is now open to anyone who will respond. How then... Do we respond? Well, with the empty hand of faith. It's the same now as it was then. 
God doesn't wait till we get our act together and sort ourselves out. He says, come now, come today. And from that faith will flow a change of life that is no longer oriented away from God, but towards him. And it's right then that we receive the sign of the covenants, receive baptism. And if you've never been baptised, well, there's a, there's a thing about that on the notice sheet. Uh, do come and talk to me and we can talk that through. If you're trusting in Jesus, receive that sign that you belong to his people. But maybe you've already been baptised, even as a baby. Then, like Abraham here, you are encouraged to live out the reality that the sign of baptism points to. Even if your baptism was many years ago as a baby, and even if you've given little thought to it since, you have received the sign of belonging to God's covenant people. So is it reflected in the reality of faith in your life? Throughout the Bible, there are warnings for God's people if we receive the sign but it's not matched by faith. Warnings of being cut off from God's people. No different from a complete unbeliever. And in the end, cut off from God. And if today you are trusting and you have the sign, what is left now is to live by faith today and to make provision to keep doing that tomorrow. We began by thinking about what is true and who we can trust. And here is the God of the universe who from the start of his dealings with human beings has said, I speak truly and you can trust me. He's made solemn promises in these covenants. He's given us signs to aid our faith today. We can trust him with our life, with our families, with the changing circumstances of a lost world, with our sin and our weakness and our brokenness and our failure, with our continual turning aside to worship other gods. We can trust him with all these things in spite of all our brokenness. We can delight in the faithfulness of God who says, I will be your God. And he means it. Let me pray. Father, we praise you for these promises. Praise you for your, your promise that you say you will be our God. You will be the God of the descendants of Abraham after him. And we know today that if we trust in Jesus, whether we are Jew or Gentile, you too are our God. We can know you. We can be in relationship with you. We can enjoy all the benefits of this covenant, the life that you promised, the blessing. We praise you for your kindness. We praise you for your grace. This is all to people who do not deserve it. We marvel at how you consistently, throughout the history of your world, gone after those who turn their backs on you to call us home with this message of grace and now we know that in Christ I pray that whether we've not yet done that 
or whether we want to keep abiding in Jesus today, you would enable us to do that by your Spirit. And then to know these the blessings of knowing you through this covenant. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.